It's good to be back together on this Lord's Day. I want to thank you for choosing to be back. As Craig mentioned, this afternoon we'll be answering alleged contradictions in the Bible. The first question is, does it matter? Why this subject of study? I cringe when I hear people talk sometimes about how this apologetic stuff doesn't matter. Often Christians have made that statement or Christian parents with young children will say, oh, that doesn't matter. We just need to believe because we believe. That's not the faith that's presented in the Bible. Our faith is based on evidence and testimony. We have reason and logic and things that that cause us to believe in these fundamental truths, the faith that we possess. It's not a blind leap in the dark as the world defines what it means to have faith. And many Christians, unfortunately, have accepted those misconceptions and incorrect definitions. doesn't matter. You know, 1 Peter 3.15 says to give an answer. That word for answer there is apologius, where we get the term apologetics. We are commanded to give an answer, to prove all things, test that which is good. Certainly, apologetics has their place. Yet, again, many people seem to bury their head in the sand when their children ask them about dinosaurs and evolution. And we don't equip them and prepare them for these assaults on their faith. And then we act shocked or surprised when their faith comes under attack in elementary school, in middle school, in junior high, in high school, all the way up into obviously college. And when some of those kids end up walking away and leaving their faith. Second Peter 1 verse 21 says, Holy men of God spake as they are moved by the Holy Ghost. That's either true or not true. And if we don't believe that's true, if we don't believe in the inspiration of the Bible... If that's not our worldview, then we're not going to submit. We're not going to obey. We're not going to follow the Bible, as we talked about this morning, if we don't believe that the Bible is the inspired Word of God. And so, obviously, this is very critical. You know, you think about why many people don't believe in the Bible, why some Christians lose their faith in the Bible. I believe one of the most common and maybe the most frequently cited reason in the 21st century for not believing in the Bible is these alleged, presumed contradictions that the Bible supposedly is full of, that these Bible writers contradicted, one, uh, contradicted each other historically, geographically, numerically, chronologically, etc., etc. So I think this study this afternoon is going to tie together a lot of the things I've been talking about lately, the series on hermeneutics, which is very critical if you're going to understand what the Bible is actually saying. In teaching, you have to have the proper hermeneutics, principles of interpretation. The Holy Spirit guiding us through the Word of God. Talked a while back on evidences for the Bible's inspiration, prophecies that are amazing. Those men couldn't have known without help. Historical accuracy, historical confirmation, archaeological confirmation. People, places, things confirmed time and time again. I think a lot of this is going to tie together as we talk about these alleged discrepancies that undermine the faith so many have in the Bible today. So I want to cover some principles that will help us in dealing with these contradictions. I obviously don't have time to cover every alleged discrepancy in the Bible. We'd be here for a long, long time. There's a long list over 2,000 years that's been developed by unbelievers of supposed contradictions. There are resources. I have books in my library, resources I... I can tell you about if you want those lists and how to deal with those contradictions. But what I want to do this afternoon is give you some principles that will help you answer these contradictions. Most of these contradictions can be tied back to one or more of the principles I'm going to present this afternoon. And we'll look at at least an example or two for each of these principles. 
And it all starts with correctly defining what constitutes a legitimate contradiction. This law of non-contradiction, fundamental law in philosophy, two opposite assertions can't both be true at the same time and the same place. So if the same thing is said to be and not be for the same person, place, or thing, or the same time, or in the same sense or respect, then a genuine contradiction exists. To illustrate, that door is closed. That door is open. If I'm talking about the same door, same place, same thing, at the same time, it might have been open at one point, might have been closed at another. Same time, same place, same thing, then I'm making a contradiction. I was so excited to talk about these doors being a fire protection engineer and life safety to make people aware that there are more doors than the entrance. When there's an emergency, everybody wants to go out the door they came in. So these doors that blend in with the walls, those are actually exits that can be used in an emergency. So that's why I wanted to use that illustration. That's That's a contradiction if I'm talking about the same door. John is rich. John is poor. Is that a contradiction? Maybe. Am I talking about the same John? Am I talking about the same time? John might have been poor when he was younger, and maybe he acquired wealth. So we've got to consider those principles. And a lot of these alleged contradictions in the Bible are a result of not defining what is a legitimate contradiction. We have to also approach the Bible with this innocent until proven guilty approach. That's not just something we need to do in the court system, but in everyday life, we can't always be cynical. There's some level of trust, some level of respect we have to treat people and things with. We have a lot of teachers uh, in this congregation. Suppose one of your students aces a test. Do you assume they cheated? I don't talk about all the variables and things going through your mind, but can you assume they cheated? What if they didn't study for the test? Can you assume they cheated? Maybe they acquired that information somewhere else. Maybe they got lucky on a multiple-choice question. Think about our children. We've learned this. You know, you can discourage your child and provoke them to wrath by not operating with this innocent until proven guilty. Now, we teach them that if you lie based on previous behavior, don't be surprised when people are cynical about you. But, you know, there was a time, every time Lincoln screamed and we couldn't see our boys, we presumed that Kyson had done something to Lincoln, and that was based off previous history, being a big brother and knocking him over and and all kinds of things like that. But then we discovered that Lincoln, unfortunately, is sometimes a little bit of a screamer. And Kyson could look at Lincoln, or Lincoln could be frustrated with the toy, and he would just scream, just top of his lungs, so obnoxious. And so we learned that we couldn't always just assume that Kyson was guilty, and that would be very discouraging, as every time Lincoln screamed and Lincoln was picking up on that, that Kyson was getting in trouble. Suppose someone asks you where you're going, and you say, I'm going home, and then they see you at the grocery store. Did you lie? We have to give people the benefit of the doubt, especially if they've demonstrated reliability, as in the case in the Bible. All that evidence that I presented in previous studies, that's so compelling. There's a reason we give the Bible the benefit of the doubt, because it has proven itself reliable time and time again. You can't assume a contradiction until all attempts at harmonizing or explaining the contradiction, fail. That leads to this next principle. Are there any possible explanations? This inductive method we've talked about, of gathering all the facts, just like in the court system. So we apply this principle to an alleged contradiction. Matthew and Mark, speaking of the crucifixion, talk about plural criminals, robbers, they, 
reviling Jesus, but Luke just says one of the criminals did that. Is that a contradiction? Now, it's a difference in the account, but does a difference in an account necessarily mean there was a contradiction? Well, it's quite possible that both of the thieves reviled Jesus, but then one repented. That goes back to, are we talking about the same time? Thief on the cross. Another explanation is that Matthew and Mark might have been using a figure of speech known as synecdoche. We talked about that in our hermeneutic series on figures of speech. Synecdoche is when the whole is put for the part, or the part is put for the whole. Genesis 8, verse 4, ark of Noah's ark rested on the mountains of Ararat. Every mountain, the whole or the part was put for the whole. What about the uh, Genesis 21 where it says Sarah had children? She had one child. The whole was put for the part. That's synecdoche. So that could have been a figure of speech employed. But again, the different time, we say and make statements about people or things, and later we recant or we don't describe them in that way because things have changed. Maybe describe them in unpleasant terms, and then they change or they repent or they're not that person, and we don't describe them in that way. Maybe that's why Luke says what he says in his account. Even though there's a difference, there's not a contradiction. Context is critical. We've talked a lot about that. Context is so, so important. Suppose I'm at a basketball game with one of my coworkers, a fellow fire protection engineer, and I make the comment, that guy's on fire. Is he going to go grab the nearest fire extinguisher or call the fire department? No, context is really, really important. There's been commercials, I can't remember, maybe Southwest want to get away, where the commercial is based around this idea of context, of what was happening leading up to what that person saw. Context is so, so important. Many misunderstandings, false doctrines, etc. are the result of people not knowing the proper context. Matthew 24 is a great example of this. There's a book, I can't remember what the gentleman's name was, but basically he lost faith in the Bible. And the smoking gun, he said, was Matthew 24. Verse 34, Jesus said, Verily I say unto you, this generation shall not pass till all these things be fulfilled. He said that was the second coming. That was judgment day. And yet here we are. 2,000 years later, those things did not come to pass in that generation. Well, if he had read the first few verses of that chapter, he would have realized Jesus was talking about the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70 during that generation. And if you look at history, it confirms the events that Jesus described and predicted in detail. Very, very terrible. Context is so important. So many times when skeptics and unbelievers claim they've disproven the Bible, they've merely ignored the context. Same person, place, or thing. I mentioned that earlier. That's another important principle to keep in mind. An infidel once announced that he had found a contradiction in the Bible. He said, Noah's Ark, with all those animals, would have weighed several tons. And yet the Bible says that there were priests that were carrying that ark across the Jordan River. Well, he had obviously ignored the difference between the ark of Noah and the ark of the covenant. We're not talking about the same thing. So that's really important. Even Christians will say that, Paul and James were fighting and contradicting each other in Ephesians 2 and James 2. Paul says no works, James says works. Are they talking about the same type of works? No, Paul's talking about works that don't save. The law of Moses, that was the question. Are we still under the old law? No, we're not. Works of merit, etc. Works of the flesh, those don't save as we talked about this morning. But there are another category of works, works required by God. Submission to God, those are the works James has in mind. Faith without those works is dead. Devils believe and tremble. Got to keep in mind, is it the same word, the same sense of the word, same concept? Acts 12, another alleged discrepancy, talks about Herod killing James, but then we read about James in Acts chapter 15. 
What's the explanation? Are we talking about the same James? James 12 is James, the brother of John. Acts 15, James is James, the brother of the Lord. Different James. What about when the Bible says God loves and then says God hates? Critics say that's a contradiction. Well, we're talking about the same thing. Things that God loves, things that God hates. Is the same time under consideration. Genesis 1, the unbeliever will say that God here after creation said that it was very good, but then a few chapters later, it repented the Lord that He had made man on the earth. They'll say, how can God simultaneously be pleased and displeased at His creation? Well, the key is it's not simultaneous. Even though it's just a few chapters later, these chapters are separated by hundreds of years between the creation and the days of Noah. Mark 15, another example, during the crucifixion and trial of Jesus. Mark says it was the third hour they crucified him. John 19 says that it was about the sixth hour when they put him on trial. So apparently, Jesus is being tried three hours after he was crucified. What's the explanation? Well, the explanation is John was using Roman time while Mark was using Jewish time. And that accounts for the difference. That difference is reconciled or harmonized when we realize that different times are under consideration. Roman time versus Jewish time. There's no contradiction. Matthew 27 says that Judas went and hanged himself. But then in Luke's account, Luke says that he fell headlong and he burst asunder in the midst and all his bowels gushed out. Critics say that Judas died twice. No, we're talking about different times. Matthew records the initial time where he hung himself. And then later on, whether the process of decomp... We're not going to get into all that, but... He bloated and it got heavy, and so if it's on a branch, it's very likely could have broke, or they were taking him down. According to legend, he hung himself by a cliff, and so he hung himself, and then later his bowels could have gushed out. There's no, dis- there's no contradiction. They're talking about different times initially, and then what happened later. Are the same words or phrases used in the same sense? That's another really important principle. Think about figurative language. A lot of people get themselves in trouble when they study the Bible not understanding figurative language, figures of speech. Matthew 11, when Jesus described John the Baptist as Elijah, and then when John was asked if he was Elijah, he said, I'm not. And you can see how that would seem to be a contradiction between Jesus and John the Baptist. Not if we understand that that word's being used in a different sense. Was John the Baptist literally, physically Elijah? No, he said, I'm not. Was he spiritually or figuratively an anti-type of Elijah, the coming one to announce the coming Messiah? Yes. There's no contradiction. That word's used in a different sense. That explains also how it says God tempted Abraham, but James says God tempts nobody. That's another common uh, contradiction you'll hear. Well, what's the meaning of the word tempt in Genesis 22, verse 1? If you look at that word, it's often translated test. David tested Saul's armor. He didn't tempt Saul's armor. He tested it. He proved it. And that's the sense in which Abraham was tested. And that reconciles James 1. Earlier in that chapter, he says that God tested, or tested, our faith is tested to make us stronger, that it can be beneficial. He doesn't tempt us to sin, but he allows us to be tested. And so we have to understand the difference in the meaning of that word. Paul says in Philippians 3, 6, he describes himself as being blameless. Yet in 1 Timothy 1, 15, he describes himself as the chief of sinners. Again, you'll hear all these contradictions and you'll have debates and unbelievers start rattling off this contradiction, this contradiction. You feel like you're hit by a whirlwind. You don't have to answer it immediately. Apply some of these principles. 
give them some of these principles and say, let me study that and I'll get back with you. You bring up some of the contradictions supposedly in the Bible after church, I'm not going to be able to answer all of them right on the spot, but you can get back with them. So what's the explanation here? Well, in Philippians 3, 6, he was talking about his reputation with the Jews. In 1 Timothy 1, 15, he's talking about his sorrow for his persecution of the church. There's no contradiction. Going back to Judas in Matthew 27. Matthew 27 says that the chief priest bought the field with that money. Acts 1, Luke says that Judas purchased the field. Is there a contradiction? Suppose a parent buys a vehicle for their child, even though the child takes the money and purchases the pickup. The parents bought the vehicle even though the child was the one who transferred the money to the car salesman. That's a well-known principle. He who acts through another is deemed in law to do it himself. That's why when you watch Dateline or these court system, uh, how somebody can be convicted of murder, even though they had somebody else, they hired a hitman. They did that action through another person. Judas provided the means for purchasing the field. So whether he bought it or the chief priest bought it, it's this different way of saying the same truth that they bought that field with the money that he had procured by betraying the Lord. That's common in the Bible. Moses talked about how Joseph spoke of his brothers being sold, his brothers selling Joseph into Egyptian bondage. Even though we know the Ishmaelites technically were the ones who did it, his brothers did it through the Ishmaelites. John 19.1 speaks of Pilate scourging Jesus. We understand he didn't literally do it, but he gave the command to do it. Did Jesus rise on the third day? We see that throughout all the gospel accounts. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul, book of Acts, he rose a third day. Critics will say he didn't come out of the grave 72 hours later. Well, that wasn't the meaning of that phrase or word then. At that time, any part of a day could be accounted as part of the whole. Friday, part of Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Suppose you go to a hotel. You check in at 6 o'clock at night, but you got to check out at 10 o'clock in the morning. How long did you stay there? Not 24 hours, but you stayed there one day and one night. And that was in use way back when. We see that throughout the Bible and throughout literature back then, that parts of days could be counted as whole days. Even his enemies recognized that he didn't contradict himself. He said that I would arise again the third day. If he had contradicted himself in making that statement, they would have been sure to have pointed that out. But that was a common expression, an idiomatic expression at the time. Last major principle, we're going to spend some time on this one, really, really important, is supplementation is not contradiction. That answers a lot of the supposed discrepancies and contradictions that people bring forth. We understand that in news stories, that different details are reported, or different news agencies. That doesn't mean there's a contradiction necessarily. There's additional information, supplementation. John eighteen forty. look at a few examples in John's Gospel. He describes Barabbas as a robber. The other gospel writers, Mark and Luke, describe him as a murderer. Is that a contradiction? No. That's just supplementation. Is it possible that Barabbas was both a murderer and a thief? Prisons are full of people who have committed multiple crimes. That's not a contradiction. That's supplementation. John 19, John speaks of Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus preparing the body of Jesus. The other gospel writers just mention Joseph. Is that a contradiction? No. Now, if they had said Joseph was the only person involved, that might have been a contradiction. That's the problem many people make, faith only, adding the word only to some of these statements in the Bible. But there's no contradiction. That's just supplementation. John 20, John talks about Mary Magdalene. What about all the other women that were there? Is that a contradiction? 
Was he at liberty to mention whatever people he wanted to that was there? You know, suppose I retell, I don't know why I'd want to do this, when I tore my Achilles, and I talk about how Will and Jeffrey were there and peer pressuring, peer pressuring me to be there, but I don't say every other person that was there. Uh, Tim was there, Zane was there, I know other people were there. But the fact that I didn't mention them in my story or record, does that mean I've made a mistake or made a contradiction? No, I just left that detail out. And I think what's interesting is this is actually one of the evidences for the Bible's inspiration. Critics will say that they just copied a single source. The gospel writers had a single source and they were just copying each other. Well, that's not the case. Different details. They wrote in their own personality and style by the Spirit, God being the editor. They never made a mistake, never legitimately contradicted each other. But there are differences in their accounts that aren't contradictions, which I believe is amazing evidence for the Bible's inspiration. How do they never contradict each other? In their accounts. Never make a mistake. But by inspiration of God. What about the healing of the blind man in Jericho? Read those different accounts. Matthew and Mark indicate that the blind men were healed while Jesus was leaving Jericho. While Luke seems to suggest that it was while Jesus was drawing near to the city. Is that a contradiction? Well again, none of them said there was only one man healed. There could have been three blind men healed. That's one explanation. Also, the verb render draw near can also mean to be near, which would have been the case whether you were coming or going. You were near Jericho. Another explanation is that there are possibly two Jerichos, the old Jericho and the new Herodian Jericho that were within a couple miles of each other. Jesus could have been between those two cities, traveling through those two cities. There are possible explanations. When I say I have a son named Kyson, that doesn't deny or contradict the fact that I also have a son named Lincoln. That's supplementation, not contradiction. That's a critical, critical principle to keep in mind. If there's a genuine contradiction, two facts are mutually exclusive. Law of non-contradiction. And supplementation, two facts merely complement each other. Trevor Till is a husband. Trevor Till is not a husband. Is that a contradiction? Again, we've got to apply those same rules. Same person, same place, same time. According to Facebook, there are multiple Trevor Tills, believe it or not. At one point, I was not a husband. Now I am a husband. What about if I say Trevor Till is a father? Is that a contradiction because I didn't say that Trevor Till is a husband? Trevor Till is a Christian? Trevor Till is a preacher? Trevor Till is a fire protection engineer? Trevor Till is maybe some negative things? No. That's supplementation. And many of the alleged Bible contradictions can be answered by a recognition of this principle that supplementation does not equal contradiction. Here's another popular one. How many times did the rooster crow? Matthew, Luke, and John speak of one crowing, but Mark says there were two crowing, crowings, whatever the correct phrase is. The phrase rooster crows often referred to the crowing not long before daybreak, commonly referred to as the cock crowing when it was the loudest, kind of the ancient world's alarm clock. Boss wants you to be at work before the rooster crowing. That had that specific crowing in mind, even though there were previous crowings throughout the night. That's what Matthew and Luke and John have in mind. The other day I took Kyson Friday night to a hockey game, and we got home, and I and Kelsey and Lincoln had not gone, and I told Kelsey we stayed till the buzzer. Well, there was a buzzer after the first period. There was a buzzer after the second period. There was a buzzer after the third period. But we understand I was talking about the final buzzer. And that's what Matthew, Luke, and John have in mind. There's not a contradiction. It is merely supplementation. 
people understand that there can be differences. Differences can even abound in accounts without there being a discrepancy, without there being an error, without there being a contradiction. There's not a legitimate contradiction if we're a member, if we define what a contradiction is correctly. If we'll approach the Bible with this innocent until proven guilty approach, are there any possible explanations? Can we harmonize these statements? What's the context? Are we talking about the same person, place, and thing, the same time? Are the words or phrases used in the same sense? And is it supplementation, not contradiction? There's not a legitimate contradiction in the entire Bible. And to me, that's very faith-building. One of the evidences I talked about, the unity of the Bible... Forty authors over writing, writing 66 books over 1,600 years without a single mistake, without a single contradiction. If you and I went to a ball game and we all wrote our accounts of that event, there'd be all kinds of discrepancies. Even unintentionally, what happened in what period or what happened in what quarter? World events. We talked about the causes of World War II. There'd be a lot of contradictions, a lot of mistakes. How do you explain the Bible never contradicts itself, ever? All these different men, all these different years, not a single legitimate contradiction. People say, well, this writer says that Jesus went down to somewhere else, but he went north instead of south. Well, if you look at the topography, he was in higher elevation, and he literally went down somewhere even though he was going north instead of south. Always harmonizes, never makes a mistake. The conclusion is all Scripture is given by inspiration of God, and we can have confidence and faith in that. It'll motivate us in the life that we live to accept the Word of God as our standard in all things. And the best news of all is the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. God sent His Son, and His Son taught us, taught us the truth. We have the gospel that we have good news through Jesus Christ. And if you're subject to that, if you need to respond to that gospel, you need to respond to the great commission of Jesus and become a Christian. You have an opportunity this morning or this afternoon to be baptized for the remission of your sins. Maybe you're here and you need help observing all things that he's commanded. Following Jesus. Being a disciple. Applying the word of God into your life. We can help you with that. If we can pray for you or help you in any way, we offer this invitation. Please come and have a seat on the front as we stand and sing together.